Thank you for attending this afternoon session. Um, as Bob said, I'm Walter Olson. I joined the Manhattan Institute recently. And we will be discussing business law and the Supreme Court's decisions on that on this panel. Uh, <clears throat> there has been a critique of the Roberts Court that's been going around for the last couple of years. You have probably seen it because it's been in some pretty prominent publications. And the critique accuses the Roberts Court of being improperly pro-business. Uh, it says that it's very hard for the little guy to win uh, before this court is presently constituted. The more overwrought versions of this critique uh, also accuse the court of being radical. We know that's bad. Uh, willing, to, uh, willing to overturn its own precedents, uh, willing to overturn acts of Congress in too many instances. Um, uh, supposedly, I'm now reaching for the most overwrought versions, uh, supposedly we have a majority of the Supreme Court that will ignore the text of the law and instead inscribe on the books a version of laissez-faire derived from the uh, University of Chicago or someplace like that, probably George Mason these days. Um, now, I think you could argue that this uh, particular portrayal amounts to a ridiculous caricature of uh, the Supreme Court, not just during uh, these later years, but at any, any time of its um, more than two centuries of history, uh, even the much maligned Lochner era. Uh, but I'm not here to argue that this afternoon. I am just here to point out that if you swallowed this line about the Roberts Court being improperly pro-business, you would have done a very bad job of predicting the outcomes of the various business law cases that made headlines this year. Uh, <clears throat> Four of those cases are written up in the wonderful new Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, we have authors of at least two of the pieces, and I hope three if Josh Wright uh, makes it. Uh, and <clears throat> I will go through briefly uh, what was held in some of these cases. Jones versus Harris. Uh, it was a case on challenges to mutual fund management fees, uh, and it was an appeal from uh, Judge Easterbrook, the famous free market icon from the Seventh Circuit, uh, who had taken a look at the existing statutory scheme by which the federal government regulates these matters, dating back to the 1940s, uh, <coughs> decided that it was not just outdated, but worked very badly, irrationally, expensively, did not, in fact, provide consumers of mutual funds with the protection it intended to, but instead encouraged nuisance suits, which never actually seemed to win before judges, but did extract settlements from mutual fund managements. And Judge Easterbrook uh, said, it's time for this to change. Uh, let's announce a new standard. And <clears throat> he did. Uh, well, if you read Larry Ribstein's scintillating paper on this, I think you are bound to agree with Judge Easterbrook, at least uh, on his critique of the existing federal law as outmoded, irrational, and not accomplishing what it intends to accomplish. Uh, the Supreme Court indeed may also agree with that critique, but it proceeded to rule 9 to 0 with Alito writing the opinion, uh, sorry, it may be irrational, it may be expensive, it may, need, it may lead to shakedown litigation, but that's up to Congress to fix. It's a statutory matter. <clears throat> the next case is the challenge to Sarbanes-Oxley, <clears throat> which, as we know, is uh, passed in the Bush administration and was at that time at least uh, arguably the uh, biggest federal regulatory scheme that had been passed in decades. Uh, it was tremendously unpopular in much of the business community from the Wall Street Journal editorial page on down. Uh, there were lots of warnings that it was going to cost tens of billions, hundreds of billions of unnecessary dollars. Uh, and Sarbanes 
Oxley was vulnerable to challenge in particular because it had set up as a new governing board a group called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, which in a moment of levity that is rare in accounting regulation, people nicknamed Peekaboo. Um, and <clears throat> Peekaboo was set up so that its members were surprisingly unaccountable. I mean, you know there's the regular level of unaccountability for federal officials, but this, as you will hear from Hans Bader, was an extra level of uh, unaccountability. And uh, so there was a clear opening for a challenge. And the name of the case, just in case there were any doubt as to which was the, quote, pro-business, unquote, position, was Free Enterprise Fund, get it, versus Peekaboo. Now, not to spoil the suspense, but the Supreme Court did not strike down Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, it did recognize the infirmity in the composition of Peekaboo, and it uh, reached over and gave it a little fix, an even more minimal fix than it had to, uh, said, okay, fixed it, it's constitutional now, go on your happy way, it kissed the boo-boo and sent it, uh, <coughs> sent it back out to play, uh, and thus turned down the chance, uh, an arguable chance, to knock down the whole wretched thing. Uh, the third case, written up by Michael Risch uh, in the review, who is not here today, was on Bilski. That was uh, patents for abstract business discoveries, such as uh, software uh, business patents, an area of huge controversy, which people on both sides, and I shouldn't say both sides, there are many different sides, uh, recognize is tremendously important, and getting it wrong is going to impose billions of dollars of costs on the economy. Uh, you might think, therefore, that a court which wanted to help out the economy would reach in and impose some standard. Uh, instead, as Rich explains, they chose a standard so narrow that it barely managed to resolve the case before them. And <clears throat> hardly sheds any light at all on the others, which are expected to just go on percolating up through the lower courts. And the last case, and I've just been slipped a note saying that uh, Josh Wright wishes he could be with us, but uh, was uh, unable to make it at the last minute, um, is American Needle versus NFL. And that was an antitrust case. And Antitrust is interesting in the court's jurisprudence because, by design, uh, the court is entrusted with much more latitude. Uh, it is not bound by statute to nearly the extent it is in most areas of economic regulation. Instead, it is more or less invited to go on making it up as, as, as it goes along as the predominant regulator right, by uh, developing and changing doctrine. So here's one where the ball really was in the court's uh, own court, it was um, uh, you know, clearly ready to change or able to change antitrust doctrine if it wanted to. And this was a case involving a uh, private antitrust litigant uh, challenging a pretty well-established old doctrine uh, in hopes of making it easier to sue. Now, uh, as Josh Wright explains in his paper, we kind of know what side is considered to be the pro-business side on antitrust litigation. It is certainly not that of private antitrust plaintiffs. Indeed, the court has been criticized by fans of expansive antitrust law for too often ruling against private antitrust plaintiffs in the past. But uh, you've probably guessed the denouement of this one. In this case, it not only ruled for the plaintiff, but chose to throw out an old pro-defendant doctrine having to do with whether or not um, you could sue a uh, group of businesses that were closely tied together uh, but were not actually under the same ownership. And 
the theme, I would say, of this is, um, uh, among other things, in business law cases, there is always something else going on. Uh, in two of the cases, there were important questions of allocation of powers. Who gets to decide under the Constitution? Uh, the court struggled with them. It took them very seriously. In the antitrust NFL case, uh, you saw the court in a different area taking terribly seriously its obligation to advance what it saw as legal stability and manageability in an area of law. Uh, as in so many cases, it really didn't boil down to which side the court wanted to see win. Um, with that, I will introduce our shrunken panel. Um, we have all of us will be speaking in a more verbose way than usual in order to make up for Josh's absence. Um, <clears throat> The, if you can imagine that with me. The, um, we have first uh, Larry Ribstein teaches law at the University of Illinois. Uh, he is one of the country's leading experts on corporate governance and securities law. Uh, his books include uh, Sarbanes Oxley, the Sarbanes-Oxley debacle, which is not the topic he's going to be talking about uh, the first, during his remarks, uh, the Constitution and the Corporation, both with Henry Butler, um, he was, uh, from 1998 to 2001, he was co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review. Uh, he has written widely on all sorts of other interesting subjects in law reviews, and uh, check out in particular his writings on the portrayal of business and corporations by Hollywood in American movies. It's great. Uh, after that, we will be hearing from Hans Bader. Uh, he is a senior attorney at the Competitive Enterprise Institute specializing in constitutional law. Uh, before that, he was with that wonderful organization, the Center for Individual Rights. Uh, he also was of counsel to the petitioners in Free Enterprise Fund versus Peekaboo, so keep that in mind. He may be biased. Um, before, he uh, has worked on some of the most important Supreme Court cases, um, including U.S. v. Morrison, 2000, and Gratz v. Bollinger, 2003. Uh, his role of previous employers uh, includes such diverse entities as Scatton Arps and the U.S. Department of Education. Um, <clears throat> I present you with Larry Ripstein. Uh, thank you, Walter. Uh, I actually had planned some as brief to talk as briefly as possible, thinking we would be uh, time constrained today. But if we have extra time, I'd be glad to talk about Money Never Sleeps, which is the, the Wall Street Two, which is opening next week, which I've been talking a lot about lately. So it, it would only take a little bit of product for me to get off on that. Um, so I'm actually not going to talk that much about the Supreme Court as much as you've been hearing from other people uh, today, because really. The uh, uh, Jones v. Harris case that I'm talking about doesn't involve a lot of complex Supreme Court jurisprudence, but I will talk a little bit along the lines that uh, Walter was just uh, uh, talking. Um, first, a little introduction. This is about mutual funds. Uh, for those of you who know a little bit or, or don't know anything about mutual funds, for the vast bulk of you that probably throws away your proxy statements as soon as you get them, one brief little introduction, that is you invest in a mutual fund which has a board of directors. You are a customer and investor in the fund, but you vote as a, an owner of the fund for the board of directors. You can imagine that there's not a lot of real big attention being paid by the investors to uh, the management of the fund, so the board really isn't under much of a, a constraint that way. Uh, the board then hires an advisor, an investment advisor, that actually decides on the investment strategy of the fund. Um, and that's basically 
all the board, the mutual fund does, of the board of the mutual fund does, except for some routine compliance matters that you would think in most companies would just be hired by, uh, would be done by management. So this was set up in 1940 in the Investment Company Act. For uh, a bunch of years uh, afterwards, about 30 years, uh, there was uh, a lot of litigation about what, what, if any, were the duties of the board of uh, the mutual fund. And the answer pretty much was under state law and none, um, that they were subject to a state law waste standard, which, given that the only thing that they did was hire the advisor, and by the way, the advisor and the mutual fund board uh, and the mutual fund are all set up by the, the overall mutual fund company, uh, namely like Fidelity, so they're, they're all uh, obviously part of the same organization. Um, but uh, this waste standard that was applied under state law uh, really wasn't much of a duty at all. This was noticed by uh, some studies. There was a famous Wharton study in the late 60s that uh, came up with a vision of what the mutual fund market should look like in their view and then decided that the mutual fund market did not look like that and therefore somebody must be, they didn't allow for the possibility that maybe the market wasn't supposed to look like what they thought it was supposed to look like, but they rushed right to the, the judgment that somebody must be breaching some sort of duty and we need to beef that up. So uh, they provided that in the in 1970 amendment to the Investment Company Act uh, that they would impose a fiduciary duty not on the mutual fund board, which is what you would expect, because that's supposedly who's actually managing the fund, but on the advisor, on the investment advisor. Um, but they never said what this fiduciary duty was. There was no precedent that could possibly have guided any kind of determination as to what this fiduciary duty was. Uh, so all we knew was that it was probably something other than the waste standard that had been applied before, or else why bother to amend the statute? So there, there uh, followed after 1970 12 years of uh, totally pointless litigation in which nobody won any case um, and nothing was ever decided. Of course, there were a lot of fees, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but uh, in 1982, we finally got some sort of standard um, under the, uh, the this fiduciary duty on the Investment Company Act, and that was the so-called Gartenberg uh, standard, uh, which said that the investment advisor uh, breaches its duty when it charges a fee that is so disproportionately large that it bears no reasonable relationship to the services rendered and couldn't have been the product of arms-length bargaining, whatever that means. All right. There followed 26 years more of totally pointless litigation, lots of fees, nobody won um, any cases, uh, and then along came, and everybody was happy with this for reasons that I'll mention in a minute, um, and then along came Judge Easterbrook, who was literally like the boy in the Emperor's No Clothes uh, parade, uh, who finally decided that he was going to actually talk about what existed in reality, which was pretty much a system that was set up only for trial lawyers. Um, and uh, he reconstituted the Gartenberg standard to be uh, a standard of all you have to do is disclose and don't play any, quote, tricks, end quote, whatever that means. But uh, it was just disclosure and no tricks. 
Um, uh, and he said well, one of the reasons that he gave for this, uh, well, he said this was all the fiduciary duty required. And then as his background reasoning, uh, he said, as Walter indicated, that, um, well, actually, I'm not sure Walter covered this in his remarks, but that markets work. Um, that the mutual fund market is a rich, deep market. There's no reason why we need this extra duty on top of it. Then there was a dissent by Judge Posner. So this is what gave Jones v. Harris a lot of, of uh, uh, vitality in the media, that you had these two law and economics uh, experts disagreeing with each other, one of them saying that markets work. Judge Posner's only basis for his dissent was that markets don't work, at least in this case. So this brought a lot of controversy into the arena and set up the Supreme Court's uh, taking of cert in uh, Jones v. Harris. So what did the Supreme Court do? Um, well, basically, they endorsed sort of the Gartenberg standard, um, uh, saying that uh, th there has to be some sort of fiduciary duty. That's what it says in the statute. Uh, so let's try to give what the statute says some meaning. And there is a fiduciary duty. The only thing we can come up with is the long-litigated um, Gartenberg standard, so that's going to be uh, the duty. There was some dictum, or maybe it's part of the rule, in Alito's opinion uh, to the effect that we need to make sure that there's no second-guessing of business judgments going on here, that this really has to be um, a, a case where it just is beyond the bounds of uh, discretion. And Justice Thomas, in a concurring opinion, reinforced that but, and he, he went a little bit further. He said not only do we not need to, to second-guess or we shouldn't second-guess uh, board members, but in fact the majority opinion is not the Gartenberg standard. That in fact it's something else. Uh, maybe we could call it Gartenberg light. So the end result of Jones v. Harris is that there's really no rule at all. I mean, we know it's not the waste standard. We know it's, uh, we, we can be pretty sure it's not Gartenberg, but we know it's not Easterbrook. So we know a lot of things that it's not, but we don't really know um, what it is. And chances are we're going to get another 26 years of litigation before um, we find out something else about the fiduciary duty in, um, uh, in, in this mutual fund case. Now, one, I want to say one word about the Supreme Court, and that's about all I'm going to say, and then I'm going to go on to some other things, which is, um, and along the lines of Walter's remark, remarks, the Supreme Court basically did what it was supposed to do. Uh, which is that it read the statute. Now, it could have read the statute like Judge Easterbrook did and say, well, there's a fiduciary duty, but it means what, the judge, what Judge Easterbrook says. But that's not really what fiduciary duty means, um, what Judge Easterbrook said. So in order to give it some meaning, we have to say something other than Judge Easterbrook, even though we don't know what it is. So I think that the court did the best it could and it stuck in this language uh, indicating that it understood that there was a problem here with excessive lit and pointless uh, litigation. And that's about all I think the Supreme Court could have done. Uh, so was it pro-business? I think so. But you don't want a pro-business court to also be an unlawful court. Um, and I think that's what the court accomplished here. So then, as, as Walter says, the court says this is a matter for Congress. And that's what I want to talk about. Uh, for the next few minutes. What, do we, what, what is the matter for Congress here? And there's really three levels of problems that I focus on uh, in my article. The first is, what do we mean by a fiduciary duty? And the answer is, traditionally what we mean by a fiduciary duty is a duty of unselfish conduct, that we're turning over control of assets 
and we expect the fiduciary to act unselfishly in the beneficiary's um, interest, not in the fiduciary's interest, in managing those uh, assets. Um, so is that what's going on here? And the answer is, well, if it were, then the investment advisor shouldn't be getting paid anything at all. Um, it's supposed to act unselfishly. How could it possibly, consistently with the duty of unselfishness, be pulling assets out of the fund to pay the advisor? Uh, but, in fact, um, when we're talking about compensation, which is basically all we're talking about here, we're talking about an exception to uh, fiduciary duty. You're talking about opting out of the fiduciary duty uh, so that we can allow for some compensation inconsistent with this overall duty of unselfishness. So that's what makes the fiduciary duty here so completely unintelligible, is that this really isn't a fiduciary duty uh, situation at all. And in fact, if you go back to the legislative history here, back to 1970, the 1970 amendment, totally a political compromise. The, the SEC did not want to be regulating fees. The advisors did not want their fees regulated, but trial lawyers, had had, which had had it great um, for all those years under um, uh, the first 12 years before the change in the standard, wanted to stay with the litigation. So we got a standard that preserved litigation, but didn't really put any duties on anybody, which is what everybody wanted. But again, that's, that doesn't have anything to do with what fiduciary duties are supposed to be. This has to do with a political uh, compromise that emerged in 1982. And again, the Supreme Court could have uh, gone along with Easterbrook and, and pointed out the nonsense, but it's clear that they wanted something else, uh, that Congress wanted something else in, um, in 1982. Uh, and again, we got sort of the best that we, uh, that we could. Um, all right, so we have this totally incomprehensible fiduciary duty. Where does it come from? In other words, what is the occasion for imposing this duty? And the answer is, we have a board of directors that must have some responsibility to somebody. That's the board of directors of the fund. And we've also got this advisor that's actually the one pulling the strings. Um, so given this board structure, uh, we need to have some governance going on here. So why do we, why do we think that in the mutual fund uh, category? And the answer is in the mutual fund context. And the answer is, Congress, in, we have to go back to 1940. In 1940, Congress was regulating for the market that existed in 1929. So we really have to go back to 1929. In the market that existed in 1929, uh, the, predominantly in the mutual fund area, we had closed-end mutual funds, which means that investors turn over their money uh, to the fund, and they can't get their money back from the fund. If they want to cash out, the only thing they can do is sell their shares in the fund. So they really are relying on the, on the management of the fund to not mistreat them. And you would expect some sort of governance in the closed-end fund context. But by the time uh, the Gartenberg uh, case was, uh, the Gartenberg line of cases was decided, by the time this actually went into effect, closed-end funds were the exception. Um, and a very small exception in the overall mutual fund area. What we now have predominantly is open-end funds, where investors can get their money out of the fund any day they want at any minute. Um, and basically, this is what turns these investors in the funds really into customers. 
um, that you don't really, you wouldn't really expect would have anything like a fiduciary duty. You don't expect that the board of General Motors, say, has a fiduciary to you, duty to you, the car buyer, to design cars in a particular way. It's subject to products liability law and various other laws, but nothing like a duty of unselfishness. You expect General Motors to be making money off of you, um, maybe not doing other things to you, but at least making money uh, off of you. So the, the bottom line is the fiduciary duty was set up for an industry that basically didn't exist even at the time of the 1940 Act and clearly didn't exist a few years later, whole different industry, but a statute that was totally um, ill-designed uh, for that. Um, which leads me to another problem here, um, which is this is all the product of federal law. Um, and in federal law, what you do not get is the dynamic process that you expect from state law. We've got a continual process of state laws responding to markets. Um, we can see just in the last few years one thing that I've studied pretty closely in the state law uh, market is, say, limited liability companies, a development that's only arisen in the last 20 years or so, but I think is a good example of this product of ingenuity and invention that you get in state law. And I'm standing under a sign that says Hayek Auditorium, and I think this is a, a principle that um, Mr. Hayek uh, would have uh, would love, and in fact did in fact endorse. Um, so uh, uh, this is the, this whole dysfunctional system that we see, where we get Congress regulating for an industry that no longer exists. We get a couple of data of event points here. Uh, the actual event, which is the 1920s, the legislation, which took place 12 years later in 1940, um, the amendment 30 years later in 1970, the case 12 years later in Gartenberg in 1982, the next case 28 years later in Jones v. Harris. This is not the kind of dynamic process that we get that can, that can align itself with what's actually going on um, in the real world. Um, so what's the future here? I mean, what can we expect? Well, what do we want here? I think what we want, if we're going to have any federal regulation at all, which is another question maybe for another day, but if we're going to have any federal regulation at all, it should be what uh, Justice Douglas wrote about 80 years ago when he was explaining the securities laws of the time, which is just tell the truth about whatever governance process you have. Let companies come up with their own mode of business. Let state law uh, decide what form of governance we're going to have. And the only thing you have to do under federal law is tell the truth about what's there. And this is going to allow um, business to evolve in the real world the way it needs to do. Uh, and I think this is still a workable standard. But a lot of people today don't think this is a workable standard because they don't think that consumers are smart enough to handle markets even with disclosure. And we still get studies like the Wharton study back in the 60s today saying, look, we, the economists, know exactly how this market is supposed to operate, and consumers are stupid because they're not falling into our model. So, uh, you know, basically consumers, what we see is mutual fund returns are lower when the fees are higher. And so this means that, that consumers are stupid. Well, a lot of other things might be going on. Like, for instance, consumers might realize that these are efficient markets, and what they're really doing is just going for safety, 
um, or they're going for convenience of, of management, and they may not be looking for um, returns at all. Uh, so there's a bunch of different things that could be going on. And maybe what we should be doing is looking at the incredibly robust competition that exists in the mutual fund market, which is what Judge Easterbrook relied on um, in his opinion, with thousands, millions of, of uh, investment uh, options and so forth out there in the market uh, as a measure of what, we're, uh, what, what we should be um, uh, thinking about when we decide to uh, regulate. So I think what's really going on here is, is consumer sovereignty dead? Uh, because if you're going to regulate a market like mutual funds, which is about the most robustly competitive market I can think of, then no market is safe. But the Supreme Court can't decide that issue. That's going to ultimately be up to Congress, as Justice Alito uh, said in Jones v. Harris. Uh, what do you think Congress is going to do? Well, in fact, we know what Congress is thinking. That was the Dodd-Frank uh, Act that was passed a, a couple of months ago, uh, where what we get is a bro possibly a broker fiduciary duty. Well, you haven't had enough of fiduciary duties of mutual fund advisors. That worked really well, didn't it? Um, you know, a 40 years of completely wasted litigation. Uh, Todd Henderson of University of Chicago has done a study, figured out that there's a, like a $125,000 litigation tax that's imposed on every single mutual fund. This, you, you like that, excuse me, you like that, well, then you're going to get more with a broker fiduciary duty. We also get the wonders of proxy access where the federal government's going to decide how much power the shareholders could ha should have. And if that's what you like, then you're going to get the kind of dysfunction that we had um, that led up to Jones v. Harris. Again, I'm sorry I bored you with a lot of uh, state and federal governance. There's nothing. The Supreme Court basically just did its job in this case, and let's just try to hope that Congress does its. Thank you. Chief Justice Roberts has been described as an advocate of uh, narrow rulings and a philosophy of judicial minimalism. And the Supreme Court's ruling this year in Free Enterprise Fund versus PCAOB was a case in point, uh, a very narrow ruling. It refused to strike down most of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, despite the fact that a central provision of the act violated the Constitution's separation of powers. Enacted right after Enron, Sarbanes-Oxley has cost the economy a trillion dollars, according to economists. The court's decision to leave it largely intact, despite constitutional infirmities, shows that it's not pro-business. Indeed, it's generally more hostile to business than the lower federal courts. The court's decision struck down tenure protections for an agency created by Sarbanes-Oxley called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB. That promoted accountability by strengthening the government's ability to fire high-ranking bureaucrats. Sarbanes-Oxley barred removal without cause of members of the PCAOB, which regulates company audits. Under it, any decision to remove PCAOB members had to be made not by the president, but by another agency whose members can also only be removed for cause, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Thus, two layers of removal restrictions insulated the PCAOB from any accountability to the president. The court ruled that that violates the Constitution's separation of powers, which vests executive power in the president. Accordingly, it struck down limits on the SEC's ability to remove the PCAOB. 
However, the court refused to strike down Sarbanes-Oxley as a whole, keeping the remainder of the act in force. It did so even though the act lacks a severability clause and the removal provisions that were invalid were central to Sarbanes-Oxley's design of creating an independent uh, board to regulate accounting. It then rejected a challenge to the PCAOB under the Constitution's Appointments Clause, which requires that the President and no one else pick the principal federal officers with Senate approval, while permitting heads of departments to pick so-called inferior officers. PCAOB members are picked not by the President, but by the SEC commissioners as a group. By striking down the restrictions on removing PCAOB members and making them subject to firing at will by the SEC, the court turned the PCAOB into inferior officers who could be picked by someone other than the President under the Appointments Clause. Thus, it used one constitutional violation to cure another and limit the reach of its decision as narrowly as possible. Even after the decision, PCAOB members whose pay exceeds the President's remain powerful. The PCAOB writes rules controlling auditing of all public companies subject to limited SEC review. It investigates violations and inspects accounting firms. It can fine accounting firms up to $2 million for inadvertent violations of its rules subject to SEC review. And it finances itself with attacks on public companies, although its budget is subject to SEC review. The challenge to the PCAOB began after it inspected and criticized the small accounting firm of Beckstead and Watts. Accountant Brad Beckstead responded with a letter criticizing the PCAOB for burying small businesses in red tape. When I saw his letter on the web, I gave it to my colleague Sam Kasman, who contacted Beckstead and suggested he sue the PCAOB. We then got together with the Jones Day Law Firm, which filed a lawsuit against the PCAOB in 2006. The lawsuit challenged the PCAOB members' appointment as a violation of the Constitution's Appointments Clause. It also challenged the PCAOB as a violation of separation of powers principles that vest executive power in the President, because the PCAOB were not removable except for cause, and removable only by the SEC, not the President, who is powerless over the PCAOB. Supreme Court precedents provided no clear answer as to whether these removal restrictions were permissible. It had struck down restrictions on presidential removal of executive officials like postmasters in its 1926 Myers decision, reasoning that the president has been stripped of his power to execute the law if he cannot choose the very people on whom he relies to carry it out. But it later upheld restrictions on removal of independent agency leaders in its 1935 Humphreys executor decision, citing their quasi-judicial, quasi-legislative role. In 2007, the trial court ruled against us. In 2008, an appeals court upheld that ruling against us in a two-to-one decision that the Harvard Law Review and Wall Street Journal described as contradicted by its own ruling and at odds with itself. The court held that the PCAOB are inferior officers who didn't need to be picked by the president because, it claimed, the PCAOB was just a component of the SEC like the SEC's own staff, not a truly independent agency. To reject our challenge, the appeals court then contradicted itself about who runs the SEC, its chairman or the SEC commissioners as a group. To reject the appointments clause challenge, the court held that all five SEC commissioners, not just their chairman, are the SEC's collective head. For purposes of the appointments clause, which requires that the heads of departments pick even inferior officers. But then, to reject the separation of powers challenge, 
it suggested that the SEC's chairman was its head since he dominates commission policymaking, selects most staff, and commands staff loyalties. The president can reassign at will which SEC commissioner acts as chairman, but he can't remove a commissioner from the SEC without cause. Because of the president's alleged influence over the SEC and SEC influence over the PCAOB, the president supposedly had enough control over the PCAOB. In dissent, Judge Kavanaugh argued that the PCAOB was an independent agency whose members were principal officers who had to be picked by the president because they could not be removed by the SEC except for cause. These removal restrictions also violated Article 2 of the Constitution, he said, which vests executive power in the president by stripping the president of influence over the PCAOB. Since the PCAOB was insulated from the president by two layers of removal protections, not just one, the case was not like Humphrey's executor redux, but rather Humphrey's executor squared. The appeals court's decision was then reversed in part by the Supreme Court. In a five to four decision by Chief Justice Roberts, the Supreme Court struck down the restrictions on removing PCAOB members, again, uh, but it upheld their appointments against an appointments clause challenge. Can everyone hear him? Back through him? Yes. I okay, think. okay. In a five to four decision by Chief Justice Roberts, the Supreme Court struck down the restrictions on removing PCAOB members, but upheld their appointments. It noted that while it had previously upheld a law restricting removal of independent agency leaders back in its 1935 Humphreys executive ruling, that ruling nevertheless left presidents with some influence over agencies by letting him remove their leaders for cause. By contrast, the PCAOB can't be removed by the president at all and can only be removed for cause by the SEC, which itself can only be removed by the president for cause. That added layer of insulation deprived the president of adequate control over the PCOB, the primary law enforcement authority for a vital sector of the economy. The court worried that presidents would use removal restrictions to deflect blame. They may have been aware that politicians had taken credit for Sarbanes-Oxley while blaming its costs on the PCAOB. The court cited a board that is not accountable to the president and a president who is not accountable for the board. It reasoned, the constitution that makes the president accountable to the people for executing the laws also gives him the power to do so. That power includes, as a general matter, the authority to remove those who assist him in carrying out his duties. Without such power, the president could not be held fully accountable. The buck would stop somewhere else. Thus, it struck down the removal restrictions, marking the first time in 84 years and the second time ever that the Supreme Court had found a removal restriction invalid. After declaring the removal provisions unconstitutional, the court decided to sever them from the remainder of Sarbanes-Oxley rather than striking down the law as a whole. Commenters had suggested that the law as a whole should be struck down if it contained a violation, since Sarbanes-Oxley lacks a severability clause. And Judge Kavanaugh below had noted that the very purpose of Sarbanes-Oxley was to create an independent accounting board insulated from political influence. The court then used its finding of a removal violation to make the broader appointments clause violation retroactively disappear by converting the PCAOB into inferior officers who didn't need to be picked by the president. Although Judge Kavanaugh below had found the PCAOB to be principal officers based on their protections against removal, the court analyzed whether the PCAOB were principal or inferior officers based on their status after the Supreme Court had excised those very protections against removal, leaving them subordinate to the SEC. 
Having retroactively rewritten the law to move the goalposts, the court then found that the PCAOB were inferior officers who could be picked by the head of a department rather than by the president, and then concluded rather dubiously that the SEC commissioners collectively were the head of that department rather than the SEC's chairman, even though the SEC's own website described the chairman as its head, and even though other federal agencies like the, uh, the OMB have described the SEC's chairman as its head. In dissent, Justice Breyer argued that the PCAOB was entirely constitutional, both against the Appointments Clause challenge and the Separation of Powers challenge, since, in his opinion, its removal restrictions supposedly enhanced regulation by eliminating political influence. Justice Breyer ignored evidence submitted by Professor Ribstein and the Cato Institute in an amicus brief that the PCAOB's independence had resulted in widespread policy failures, lack of coordination with other agencies, and duplicative regulation. Breyer lamented that high-ranking agency bureaucrats could now be removed under the court's decision. He noted that the PCAOB were not unique in being subject to only removal for cause by an agency which in turn is only removable by the president for cause. He noted that 573 senior executives were now removable by agencies they worked for as a result of the decision, people like the FTC's executive director and agency general counsels. The court divided along ideological lines with the four liberal justices in dissent. A ruling that lets bureaucrats be removed benefits conservative presidents more than liberal ones, since bureaucrats tend to be liberal and favor expanded regulation. Sarbanes-Oxley co-sponsor Michael Oxley noted that PCAOB rules gave the accounting industry carte blanche to do almost everything they wanted to do, which turned out to be far more expensive than anticipated. They just went crazy. Uh, indeed, the PCOB went in, in, in regulation maybe even beyond what some many moderate Democrats would have wanted, as we saw in th this past year when the administration uh, went along with uh, Republican and moderate Democratic desires to exempt small public companies from the PCOB's internal controls rules. The otherwise terrible Dodd-Frank financial regulation law, which passed Congress recently, exempts small public companies from uh, the internal controls rules of the PCAOB. Uh, nevertheless, the court's ruling excised as little as it could of an incredibly costly law and retroactively rewrote it to diffuse a challenge to a violation present in it from its very inception. That showed that the court is not pro-business, as liberal commentators and politicians falsely claim. Slate's Dahlia Lithwick falsely claimed that in the Supreme Court, big business always prevails, environmentalists are always buried, and female workers go unprotected. In reality, environmentalists have won many cases at business's expense, like Massachusetts versus EPA, arguably the most economically significant Supreme Court decision of all time in potentially opening the door to EPA regulation of virtually all economic activities. Uh, and even that case even created a special rule of standing to allow state attorneys generals to sue, uh, to permit lawsuits that ordinarily would be barred by the Constitution's case or controversy requirement. The Supreme Court also recently let businesses be sued even for products that the FDA deems to be safe and effective in Wyeth versus Levine, a case that Ted Frank described as the worst anti-business decision in 43 years. And the Supreme Court has also been much more pro-plaintiff in employment law than the lower federal courts. The court has 
expanded punitive damages for discrimination in the Kolstad case, which abrogated lower court rulings in virtually every circuit, including the Ninth Circuit, that limited punitive damages. It's broadened the definitions of sexual harassment and retaliation, such as in its Burlington Northern case, where it broadened retaliation provisions well beyond the uh, definition of retaliation in, in every circuit except perhaps the Ninth. So the Supreme Court is not particularly pro-business. It may be less anti-business than some state courts, but it is uh, certainly not as pro-business as the lower federal courts. And this decision in Free Enterprise Fund versus PCAOB, in a sense, confirms that. The court's refusal to invalidate Sarbanes-Oxley despite constitutional defects contrasts with liberal states' willingness to strike down entire pro-business laws, like tort reform, even when they contain severability clauses, like the Illinois Supreme Court's invalidation of tort reform in 1997 based on a few unconstitutional provisions, even though the law contained a broad severability clause. The court's refusal to strike down Sarbanes-Oxley, which lacked a severability clause, contrasts with its willingness to strike down other laws, like abortion laws, even when only certain portions of the law were considered unconstitutional, and even when the laws in question had broad severability clauses. So if the court had wanted to, they could very easily have struck down Sarbanes-Oxley based on these constitutional infirmities, but they didn't. And instead of striking Sarbanes-Oxley down, the Supreme Court retroactively rewrote it to get around a constitutional violation in it that was present from the, very, from the PCAOB's very inception. Prior to the court's ruling, PCAOB members were not removable at will by the SEC and thus were not inferior officers who could validly be appointed by the SEC rather than the president under the appointments clause. Only the court's ruling striking down their removal protections made them so. Thus, the PCAOB was unconstitutional until the Supreme Court ruled and its members were never validly appointed to begin with. So it should have been struck down. As a lawyer noted, the PCAOB's constitutional infirmity was present at birth. Simply put, the PCAOB never was a constitutional entity. The PCAOB's lack of accountability infected all its actions ab initio. To allow the PCAOB's actions to stand hardly promotes the constitutional rule of law. Despite its narrowness, the Supreme Court's ruling will make the PCAOB more accountable. It gives the SEC more ability to prod the PCAOB into revising burdensome rules by relying on the prospect of removal. Of course, whether the SEC has the desire to use that added leverage remains to be seen. One example of where the SEC's newly expanded authority over the PCAOB might have been helpful is in the PCAOB's internal controls rules. Uh, as Representative Oxley has noted, uh, the co-sponsor of Sarbanes-Oxley, the PCAOB managed to take a two-paragraph provision in the statute and turn it into 330 pages of rules that were vastly more expensive than anyone anticipated. Those rules cost $35 billion a year to the American economy, 20 or 30 times more than projected. And in fact, they're far more costly than anyone anticipated, as former SEC commissioners like, uh, I believe, uh, Commissioner Grunfest have, have noted. Yet the PCAOB's rules did nothing to prevent the financial crisis. Indeed, subprime mortgage lender Countrywide was a paragon of Sarbanes-Oxley compliance. As my colleague John, uh, John Burlow has noted, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was written up as the paradigm example of how you can track all your risks under Sarbanes-Oxley. It's the per perfect example of, of risk management with you know, matrices and thousands of variables and excellent record-keeping and tracking. 
And of course, uh, so Countrywide Financial, in addition to helping spawn the mortgage crisis, uh, ultimately had to be taken over as it verged on, on failure because of all those losses. So Sarbanes-Oxley did nothing to prevent the financial crisis. The PCOB's rules did nothing to prevent the financial crisis, except maybe it may have diverted attention from major risks to trivial ones and thus uh, helped take corporate management's eyes off the ball. In a 2009 speech, former SEC Commissioner Atkins said that after their cost became apparent, all five SEC commissioners were privately in favor of radical changes to those rules, yet it took the SEC years to get the PCOB to make modest changes. Secure against removal, the PCOB reportedly rebuffed the SEC's chairman when he suggested exempting small firms, according to scholars like Roberto Romano. Even after the Supreme Court's decision expanding SEC control over the PCAOB, swift reform is unlikely because the SEC's composition has recently changed as PCAOB critics like Atkins have left the SEC. Replacing them are commissioners like Aguilar who have blamed the financial crisis on mythical deregulation, even though regulation radically expanded under Bush thanks to Sarbanes-Oxley. The SEC's stance may change if a more market-friendly administration comes to power, in the 2008 campaign, uh, Romney and to a lesser extent Giuliani recognized the burdensome nature of these Sarbanes-Oxley rules and wanted to reform them. Uh, so it may be that a future administration will be willing to uh, push for SEC appointments who will be more market-friendly and thus more willing to pressure the PCOB to rein in those rules with the added leverage they have as a result of the Supreme Court's decision giving the SEC the ability to remove PCOB members at will. Uh, Ironically, a law just enacted, the otherwise bad Dodd-Frank law, exempts small companies from the internal controls rules. Uh, my colleague, John Bullau, pushed for that exemption. So the irony is that although Dodd-Frank is a, a monster of a law and will be incredibly costly to the economy, uh, in one area, Sarbanes-Oxley, it actually marks a small advance. And that was no thanks to Dodd or Frank, who opposed exempting small public companies, but it is th th thanks is owed to Republicans and moderate Democrats uh, who pushed for that provision to be included. Uh, but in any event, the Supreme Court's ruling directly governs only independent agencies, which can now remove high-ranking bureaucrats at will. But it may indirectly also affect cabinet departments and other executive branch officers by breathing new life into the Supreme Court's previously eroded 1926 Myers decision. Myers let presidents fire executive officials like postmasters at will, striking down a law that prevented presidents from removing them without Senate approval. The PCAOB ruling relies on Myers and thus reaffirms it. Cases after Myers suggested that it had been largely overruled or limited to contexts where Congress granted itself authority over executive branch officials by requiring its consent for removal. But by applying Myers to a law that did nothing of the sort, the PCAOB case shows that Myers' reach can't be so easily cabined and that administrations have broader authority to fire. Thus, it may, be, uh, it may be easier for administrations in the future to fire officials who thwart their policies. One possible example being the liberal justice department lawyers who push uh, controversial policies like you know, blocking voter ID and race-based redistricting, even under Republican presidents who don't favor those policies. The Supreme Court's willingness to bend over backwards to preserve as much as possible of Sarbanes-Oxley, despite its enormous cost, shows that the Supreme Court is not pro-business. Still, its ruling will promote government accountability by making it easier to fire officials like the PCAOB. Thank you.
here I was avoiding mentioning Delia Lithwick by name, and you went ahead and, and did it. Um, from now on, I understand uh, legislators will no longer call them severability clauses, but severability polite suggestions in view of how they're received by courts. Um, we have time for questions. Uh, ideally, the questions should start out being closely linked to the papers uh, before going on to uh, the portrayal of business in Hollywood films or uh, other cases Hans has been involved in. Uh, do I see any questions? Yes. Um, as usual, rules, identify yourself and wait till the... Uh, My name is Stephen Shore. I'm with the PBGC. Um, am I correct that the Myers decision uh, overturned the Tenure of Office Act that Congress, the Reconstruction Congress, passed to prevent President Johnson from re removing Secretary of War Stanton? And this was in limbo. Its constitutionality was in limbo until the Myers decision, however much, that, however little... The Myers decision served as precedent until the 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 the, the decision you, you refer to. Uh, yes, that's right. It, it, it overturned the Tenure and Office Act, and of course, back in Reconstruction, there was that whole controversy about whether President Johnson could fire cabinet officials. And of course, Myers goes go, not, Myers involved not a cabinet officer, but uh, you know a, a postmaster. So it more broadly reached executive branch officials generally. And, in fact, in, uh, in Myers, the court noted that the vast majority of people who qualified as officers for purposes of its ruling were civil service employees. So the fact that somebody's covered by some civil service statute doesn't, doesn't override the Constitution. The agency or, or the, the president or his alter egos like cabinet secretaries thus may very well have the ability to remove a subordinate under this decision even if they're nominally covered by some civil service statute or regulation. Next question. Yes. Yeah, speaker, it, Mike's not on. You need to. Yeah, it is on now. Okay. My name is Dave Torgerson. I'm just here for myself today. Uh, I I have a very hypothetical question. If you just want to turn it down, that's fine. What? How would the, uh, the cases that you analyzed? How they would? How could they have been changed? had Judge Bork been appointed instead of Judge Thomas. <laughs> Are we talking about Judge Bork rather than Judge uh, uh, Justice Kennedy? I, I mean, to me, I think you might have gotten a, might have gotten a broader ruling in, uh, in our case in terms of the remedy. Uh, it's sheer speculation, but, you know, if, if Justice Kennedy is sort of the swing vote, although I know he hates being described as the swing vote, uh, and they, they had to write a very narrow ruling to get him on board, you know, Justice Bork might have been more willing to provide a broader remedy if that was consistent with original intent. Uh, you know, your, your willingness to, I think Justice Bork was more willing to uh, write controversial opinions consistent with original intent that might have a broader reach. Uh, although, you know, in this case, look, it seems to me that there is, Maybe the justices were concerned about potentially invalidating other laws. I mean, there are so many laws which no one has given any thought to separation of powers in their drafting. One example being the recent Dodd-Frank law. The Dodd-Frank law sets up a Financial Stability Oversight Council, and it can, has 15 members, 11 whom, whom are picked by the president, the way you would expect under the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, and separation of powers. And the other four, who very peculiarly are picked by so, you know, groups of state banking commissioners, groups of state securities commissioners, people outside the federal government. And they're non-voting. They're non-voting uh, officials. 
But according to the D.C. Circuit in its decision in FEC versus NRA Political Victory Fund, even non-voting members of independent agencies and commissions, like the FEC in that case, have to be picked by the president uh, consistent with the with separation of powers. And you can challenge an enforcement action if they're not picked by the president, if they're not constitutionally selected. So my, my guess is, you know, the, the court may have been concerned about uh, potentially broad implications of its ruling, but even so, the, its ruling does have broad implications. There are... Uh, you know, for many, well beyond independent agencies, and even the court's prior appointments, law, appointments clause case law has p- potentially calls into question some of the major recently passed regulatory overhauls, like the Financial Stability Oversight Council created by the recently passed Dodd Frank law. Larry, want to add anything to that, or? Uh, well, not to that. I, I had a, one little comment, which is um, maybe we need to be careful about what we mean by pro business and anti business, because I think that. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was clearly anti-small business. Um, the, the costs imposed by SOX are not scalable, um, or at least they're not even close to being perfectly scalable. Of course, they fell on large businesses, but large businesses fear entrepreneurial upstarts, I think, maybe more than they fear their lateral competitors. Uh, and SOX clearly stuck it to... Uh, the smaller firms, and remember, it was passed by uh, at the not just signed by uh, President Bush, but pushed by President Bush in the summer of of 2002. So uh, I'm just raising an ambiguity there, <laughs> and that would put it in the category with a lot of other uh, pieces of legislation uh, that are uh, di- divide big business from small, uh, including consumer product regulation, uh, food safety regulation. Uh, I always listen carefully uh, for the words that the business community has signed off on the thing Congress uh, is planning to do, usually meaning that some of the Fortune 100 companies say, sure, we're fine with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, more questions. Yes, here. Uh, no, you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, my name is Tad Howard. Um, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, Har- Harvey Waxman, Harry Waxman, has had a real go at the rating agencies, by which he means Moody's and S&P and Fitch. There's another group of what I would call rating agencies, I would name PwC, Deloitte, E&Y, and KPMG, that rate the companies with an opinion. And I'll give you a long list of companies that got a clean opinion on their most recent op- opinion before filing bankruptcy. Uh, CIT Financial... Uh, Lehman, General Motors, Enron, WorldCom, the list goes on. And all these got clean opinions. They did not get going concern opinions, even though they were within 12 months of filing for bankruptcy. Now, isn't that within the purview of the PCAOB? Well, if it's within the purview of the PCAOB, what did they do to to remedy these situations? I mean, uh, Countrywide was a paragon of of, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, and they basically failed. So I'm, I'm I'm not sure that there's really a remedy. I mean, the, the PCOB spent a huge amount of time focusing on inter- inter- companies' internal controls, which auditors ended up interpreting as covering, you know, which employee has access to which computer password or how many letters are the, in the string of your employee password. And rather than looking to me at what I would have thought were more significant risks. So I'm, I'm, it, it seems to me that if, you know, this, just as the private sector is not perfect, uh, so, too, government agencies are not omniscient, and, in fact, they have less accountability. And so the regulators are usually well behind where the market is. They're usually regulating yesterday's risks rather than today's risks, and they can't really protect you from, 
you know, future bubbles. It seems like there's a bubble, and every generation has a bubble, and it's never anticipated by the government. Next, you'll be telling us that the SEC did not do a good job against Mr. Madoff. Oh, no. I mean, but, the SEC <laughs> overlooked the world's biggest Ponzi scheme, you know, a $50 billion Ponzi scheme, and ignored repeated tips and suggestions that it investigate him. So the SEC does not seem to be particularly proactive either. More questions? Yes. Blue shirt. John Burla, I'm a colleague of Hans at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, Hans, excellent overview, and I certainly wish the Supreme Court and uh, the PCAOB case had gone further. I wanted to ask, and I would also ask Professor Ribstein, though, about a couple of what might be the practical effects. If the PCAOB is removable, is removable by the SEC at will, does that mean that the next president, whoever he or she may be, once he or she appoints uh, a member of the SEC and has a majority on the SEC, that the PCAOB would be removable if they wanted to do that the next day? Um, and so, and would this does this put this issue in the political process and give the president more control in in that sense? And also, the law, unfortunately, the rest of the law was was held sever, uh, severable. But um, what about the actual rules issued by the PCAOB? Is there a precedent for when there are other separation of powers violations, either sweeping aside uh, penalties or rules while the agencies themselves were unconstitutional, putting aside the statute itself? So I, I mean, I guess maybe I'll address the second first. Logically, you would think that if they were invalidly appointed, that would taint everything they did, and all their rules would be invalid. Just the way, you know, when the, F, when the FEC was invalidly constituted, its enforcement action against the NRA was subject to challenge in the D.C. Circuit. And just as the Supreme Court has held that you can challenge a conviction based on improper appointments, regardless of whether you're guilty or innocent. The trick in our case is that they didn't find the appointments clause violation, although they sort of retroactively made it disappear so that it kind of arguably existed until, they, until their ruling. Uh, instead, they merely found a removal violation. And there is precedent in vaguely analogous areas for challenging rules, like when a legislative veto, when the presence of a legislative veto provision that violates separation of powers influences and colors an agency's rule, there are lower court rulings that say that those rules can be challenged. And maybe by parity of reasoning, you could point to the, uh, the, the sort of tension, the behind-the-scenes tension between the SEC and the PCAOB over its internal controls rules, and you could argue if, if you were a company burdened by them that those internal controls rules were sort of shaped and influenced by the lack of real authority the, PC, the SEC had over the PCAOB and thus are invalid. I can see someone making the argument that those particular rules being heavily influenced by the SEC's limited power over the PCAOB uh, are tainted by the it's the, uncon the unconstitutional removal provisions that the Supreme Court later struck down because they couldn't induce action by the PCAOB through the unstated threat of removal. I think that would probably really only apply to the internal controls rules. I don't know of tension between the SEC and the PCAOB over other rules, but there was certainly, according to Roberto Romano uh, and according to former SEC Commissioner Atkins, a real tension between the SEC and the PCAOB over its burdensome internal controls rules, which people like Chris Cox didn't want to publicly question because he didn't want to be blamed for being an evil right-wing deregulator, but which privately behind the scenes supposedly the, the SEC wanted far greater changes or rollbacks to those PCOB regulations. And I can see the argument being made that those rules are invalid because they're tainted by the PCOB's unconstitutional unaccountability. We didn't raise that argument in our case, by the way. 
You know, as the Supreme Court noted in Waters versus Churchill, cases cannot be read as foreclosing an argument they never dealt with. And we never challenged the rules as opposed to the statute itself, partly because if we challenged rules, it would have mucked up and, you know, given more atmospherics to the other side's argument that we should have pursued certain administrative exhaustion rigmarole and gone through the SEC and spent years there rather than going straight to court. So for partly for tactical reasons, we never challenged any particular rules. So I think that's still technically open. I think if somebody wanted to challenge the PCOB's internal controls rules, the most burdensome rules it's adopted, they could do so logically uh, by pointing to the fact that those rules are still on the books and are as awful as they are because of the fact that the SEC lacked effective removal control over the PCOB, so the PCOB did just the tiniest little changes to the rule to shut up the SEC rather than the real changes they would have made if they were had the fear of God that someone like Paul At- Commissioner Atkins or, or Chairman Cox could really remove them. I'm sorry, what was the other question? Maybe, maybe Professor Ribstein can answer that. Yeah, t- time is, is growing late. Uh, if, if it's okay to, to, to move on, Larry, do you have any? Well, just quickly, I want to reinforce something that Hans said about um, perspective here, that you could say that a central reason for SOX was to deal with accounting, because that's what was responsible for Enron. And within that, a central objective was to make the PCAOB independent um, which casts some, I mean, I think that helps cast some real doubt on what the court did in the case. And I think it, it, it sort of indicates that uh, it's, gonna, it, it's really difficult to put all these cases under this heading of pro-business or anti-business. That's an incredibly simple-minded way to, to view it. In the Jones v. Harris, I think the court did a good job of actually reading what Congress was thinking about. In um, the Sarbach's case, the court did a horrible job of doing it, uh, in, in my view. And uh, to look at these cases under some general aegis of pro-business, anti-business, and so forth, as I said, it's just incredibly simplistic. Yeah. Uh, let me say I agree completely. And in framing it that way, I was meaning to criticize the uh, Dolly Latour. Yes. I no, I wasn't criticizing yeah. you, Walter. Yeah. Um, we have time for one last question. Uh, yes. Roger Parloff, uh, Fortune magazine. Um, when the court decided the honest services case, the uh, uh, Justice Scalia and I, I forget who else joined him, was furious about the uh, narrow the majority's narrowing of the statute in order to uh, uh, make it survive. Uh, and then four days later, they decided the Peekaboo case. Uh, any and all of the conservative wing went very quietly that time. Any idea why they saw those cases so differently? I don't know if they really, the conservatives really saw it differently. They may have been trying to keep somebody on board because it was a five to four decision in in Peekaboo, unlike the honest service cases. So they may have been more afraid of a desertion. They may have been afraid that Justice Kennedy would switch sides or, you know, I don't think they were afraid of Chief Justice Roberts switching sides, although Roberts does have a penchant for minimalism that you don't find with uh, Justice Thomas or Justice Scalia. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Um, we have a fabulous panel coming up after the break. Uh, it is looking ahead to October term 2010. Uh, it's moderated by our own Ilya Shapiro, and the panelists will be uh, Eric Jaffe, uh, who wrote the uh, article in the review, Tom Goldstein, uh, and Robert Barnes, the Supreme Court reporter of the Washington Post. 
Uh, with the prerogative of the moderator, I'm going to let you out five minutes early uh, for the break. Please do not misuse that privilege. Come back here promptly at 345. And please join me in thanking our great panel.